Welcome to the First Century Church Podcast. My name is Stephen Wilhoy, and I'm the lead pastor at First Century Church, and it is an honor to have you with us today. The goal of the podcast is simple. We want you to be encouraged, challenged, and inspired to go further in your faith than ever before. If you'd like more information about the church, you can visit our website, firstcenturykc.com. And if you happen to be in the Kansas City area anytime soon, we'd love to have you join us for one of our live gatherings to connect with you in person. Again, thanks for joining us today, and we hope that you enjoy today's message. Uh, Let me ask you this question as we get started today. Have you ever uh, tried to fix something but actually made it worse? Maybe it's a mess you try to clean up and you're just spreading the mess around at the beginning. Um, or I know I've done this. I've thrown away a lot of slinkies in my day because there might be a little twist or tangle in the slinky. And sometimes I can fix it. And sometimes I try to get the, it out and it makes it, it's now, a, there's no way I can fix this. So guess what? In the trash can. Sorry, kids, that happens. So your slinkies go missing. That's where they went because that made it worse than it was before. Or maybe I know that the husbands in here can probably relate to this, where you say something, it doesn't come out great, it probably doesn't come out the way you intended, and so the more that you try to explain what you meant to say, you're digging the hole even deeper. You know what I meant was, and then it just it's just not helping. You're just, just stop, you know? Uh, we've all been there, and so I'm sure, again, guys, you can relate to that with your significant other. Uh, yeah, anyway, so that sometimes we try to fix things uh, and we make it worse. And that's what we're going to talk about today in week three of this series, Getting Out of Our Own Way. Uh, we're going to look at, so last two weeks, we kind of set this up for this week. So the first week we looked at uh, when you're about to make a terrible decision, what you tell yourself to convince yourself it'll be okay. So we try to, uh, I'll just kind of recap the beginning. We try to fix things sometimes and make them worse. That's what we're going to talk about today. So week one of this series, Getting Out of Your Own Way, we looked at why we try to tell ourselves that a terrible decision or an awful mistake will work out okay, even though we really know in our gut, in our heart, in our head, it will not turn out okay. And last week we looked at excuses as we kind of step into mistakes or see ourselves getting going, starting to go down the wrong road, or we're like, this is not going like I convinced myself it was. What do we tell ourselves? What excuses do we give to justify continuing down that road? And so today we're going to go one step further. We're going to kind of continue on with that idea. Today we're going to look at four excuses we tell ourselves after we've already just made a mess of a situation or a decision or relationship or conversation or opportunity or a whole segment of your life. You've just exploded into bits. What, what excuses do we tell ourselves and others to justify why we made that mistake? That most of the time, we'll look at next week in greater detail, why most of the time those mistakes that we make are pretty much avoidable. We, we choose to step into the mess, and we've gone on and on and on. And now at the end, when we look at the disaster that we have made of, again, a situation or a decision or a relationship, whatever it is, 
What do we tell ourselves to justify why we did that in the first place? It's very sneaky, very subtle, but, but we do these kind of things all the time. We'll look at four of them today, and most of them are going to revisit the last two weeks. We're going to look at maybe why the people that we've talked about previously, what they look back on, the disaster that they made, and what they either did say or would have said uh, to justify that. And then we're going to come back to each of those as we, as we go through them. We'll come back to them and look at an alternative. What, what is actually going on here? What actually happened? What should we say instead of these excuses that we should just not go to at all, okay? So we're going to pick up directly from where we left off last week uh, in 2 Samuel 11. So in this story in the Old Testament, David is the king of Israel, and he's sort of had this midlife crisis impulse moment in his life. He has uh, entered into an affair with one of his best friend's wives who lives right down the road from him while his best friend is off fighting in a battle for him, okay? And so that's where we left it off, but and it was because we looked at last week, David convinced himself that he deserved this one moment. He deserved this thing to happen. He, he had been a good boy for so long, and he justified it in that way, is what we would presume. So now after he's made a mess, because here's what happens after this affair, is this woman Bathsheba tells him, hey, I'm pregnant which is a problem because, again, her husband's off fighting in a war and has been for some time. And so David panics, but then he thinks, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to cover my tracks so that, and here's the excuse, the first excuse today and the fifth one in this list of eight overall. The excuse that David gives to justify his behavior is no one will ever find out. That's what he convinces himself. He tries to cover up his tracks. So what he does, if you, don't, if you know the story, bear with me. If you don't, hang on, buckle up, okay, for a good one. Uh, David takes his friend Uriah off the battlefield and gives him sort of a vacation and says, hey, you know, I want you to enjoy yourself. You've been, you know, fighting hard. You're a good friend of mine. And he basically gets him drunk and tells him to go sleep with his wife because he knows, okay, if it turns out that she's pregnant but he was home for a break, no one's ever going to know anything nefarious happened here and I'm off the hook. He tried to cover his tracks. However, Uriah, his friend, this woman's husband, says no. He has so much character. He's so noble. He says, I can't do that to my guys that are still out there fighting. What am I going to tell them that the king did me a favor, brought me home, and I had a great weekend? And what, I'm, I'm just not. So he refuses to even go into his house. So David has a problem when a couple days later Uriah is going to go back on the battlefield because this woman's wife is, or this man's, whoa, when, not, not, not that kind of story. This man's wife is pregnant, which that would be a miracle story from the Bible anyway. So anyway. Uh, got way off track there. Sorry. I'm going to cut that anyway. I won't. I'll leave it in there. So he sends Uriah back to the battlefield with a note that is stamped and sealed by the king to give to the general. And he's handing Uriah his own death sentence because what the general reads in this note is, hey, you know the guy that just brought you this note? Yeah, put him on the front lines when the battle gets hot and then have the other men pull back. David in basically as a mob boss here, he has his friend killed. He does it strategically. Now, again, he's covering his tracks because no one's going to know that this happened except for him and the general. Okay, they're going to keep it their little secret. Uh, and now that Uriah, and Uriah dies in battle, this plan works to perfection as far as David's concerned. So no one's going to find out because what he does is he takes pity on his friend's widow takes him in as one of his wives, and so then when she gives birth a few months later, no one really thinks much about it. So as far as David's concerned, this plan worked 
great, no problems, no issues. No one's ever going to know that I have done all of these terrible things. However, the only person that David didn't fool was the only person that mattered, and that was God. Because then God tells the prophet Nathan, he approaches David and says, Hey, God knows what you've done. He watched every step. You may have fooled everybody else, but you didn't fool him. And why does it matter if you fool everyone else if you didn't fool him? So God tells him, Hey, I knew you didn't fool me. And he exposes openly David's sin. So we sometimes will justify decisions with this sort of plan. Well, if I cover my tracks, if I get rid of the paper trail, if I hush enough people, then this doesn't have to be an issue. doesn't have to be a problem. Let me just say this in the case of, use David as this example. Let me just, maybe you do cover your tracks. Maybe you do, you know, hide the evidence. Maybe you do shut enough people up that you're not going to be exposed. Let's just say that happens. The question, though, is, does that actually justify our behavior in the first place? No. So we don't really, we haven't hidden, the, we haven't really solved the problem, we've hidden the problem, which is going to cause other issues. It doesn't undo the damage, it doesn't undo the pain that act, those events actually cause, those actions or words actually cause, it just keeps them kind of quiet under the surface, which for a while seems probably great, but then two things happen. Either we, and we'll get to this later in a, in a little bit. Either we just live in guilt forever about this because nobody knows and it's eating at us, or eventually we do get exposed and then it just causes a huge mess. And just like with David, even if we fool everyone else, we never fool the only one that can't be fooled. And that matters. That really does matter. So my encouragement is, and we'll come back to this again to look at the alternative. My encouragement is don't give in to this lie. It doesn't work. It doesn't pan out like we think and hope that it will. The second excuse we're going to look at today about why we justify terrible, awful, self-destructive behavior is really the oldest excuse ever, and that is the devil made me do it. Okay? It's literally the oldest excuse ever given. So we know it's the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve are there. God gives them really just one rule. You can do anything you want. You can have anything you want except this one tree. Don't eat of the fruit. Don't even touch it. Or he says, you will die. Could you live with just one rule in your life? The answer is no, because we have proof from the Bible that we can't do it. We will. It's like when you tell your kid to not, the cookies are off limits. And you just leave the cookie jar right there in the middle of the counter. It's just torture, isn't it? It's awful. Or you tell someone, don't look at that. What do we do? We look at that. It's just human nature. It's just how we are. And this is revealed from the very beginning. So what happens is uh, Adam and Eve eat of the fruit of that tree that God told them not to. And again, just like with David, God knew all along. He, he found out. And so he confronts them. He confronts Eve. Uh, well, he confronts Adam first. We'll come to him second. I got some words for uh, of encouragement for us men. So let's start with Eve. So he approaches Eve and says, hey, what, what gives? What happened? What does she say? Genesis 3.13, the Lord God asked the woman, what have you done? The serpent deceived me, she replied. That's why I ate it. She literally uses this excuse. The devil made me do it. She takes no personal responsibility. She shirks that responsibility. And you know where she learned this from? Her husband. Because God approaches Adam first, and he says, what happened here? The previous verse, verse 12, here's Adam's response. Men, pay very close attention. He said, it was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit, and I ate it. 
if you're going to throw your wife under the bus, don't do that. But definitely don't start by calling her this woman, okay? That's probably, that's like, you know, again, we're trying to make it better, we make it worse. That's like the, like, death sentence right there. I don't know how Adam survived another 900 years after this moment because Eve surely was like looking for the sickle that we use, you know, in the garden and she, you know, had some self-control. So both of them do the same thing. They, they, and they would say the devil made me do it, but they would blame somebody else. Well, this person caused me to do that. And it's similar to the next one, but this is what we're going to look at. I want you to look at Jesus in both Luke 4 and Matthew 4. The devil literally comes to him, right, literally in the wilderness to tempt him, to give in, to basically use his supernatural powers for his own gain, which he is just not going to do. He never did, would not do that. And that was part of this issue. And then it really comes down to Satan saying, hey, bow down and worship me and I'll give you everything in the universe. Really dumb because Jesus already owns everything in the universe. He is Lord over everything. So, and why would he worship Satan. That's really dumb, but Satan's not that smart all the time. He thinks he is, but he's not. So here's the difference. Jesus refuses to give in to this temptation, even though if he would have, he could have literally said, the devil made me do it. Like this powerful supernatural force, he really convinced me. Oh, he was really tricky with what he said. He twisted my arm and I gave in. We, We can sometimes tend to do that as well. Our instinct when we fall and get in our own way is to find somewhere to point the finger. Find somewhere to place the blame. It's, it's natural for us to shirk that personal responsibility. And again, I've said this every week, so let me say it again. Not every bad thing that happens to us is our fault, okay? But every bad decision that we make, every reaction or action that we choose to make is on us. And if that leads to a place that we don't want to go, then we are responsible, So again, some things just happen, some negative events that we can't control befall us. That's, we're not, I'm not trying to place blame where there's no blame to be placed on ourselves. But how we respond, react, and act is completely on our own. We have to take responsibility and not say the devil made me do it. In a very similar vein, quickly, the, the third excuse that we'll use to justify terrible, awful, bad, negative, destructive behavior is, well, they did it. Or, similarly, they did it to me so I can do it back to them. And go back to the first week of this series uh, in 1 Samuel 24. We have King Saul and then David before he's king. He is the king's uh, son-in-law. And Saul is literally going insane. He's losing his mind. And part of this paranoia, part of this anger gets directed toward his son-in-law, David. So he chases him around Israel night and day trying to kill him with an army of about 3,000 soldiers trying to chase David and a couple hundred guys who are loyal to him. And as we looked at uh, the fir- two weeks ago, David has an amazing opportunity, and he actually has two of them, one we didn't cover, but he has two opportunities where Saul is completely exposed for David to kill him. Now, David would have the ultimate excuse. He's literally trying to kill me. I have to get him before he gets me. It's preemptive. So his excuse would, would be certainly completely valid. But as we talked about again two weeks ago, when David had these opportunities, he felt this tension. He felt this check that something's not right about this. Yes, I may be justified in doing this. I may have every right to do so. It may be for my own self-interest to act in this way. But something inside of me, really the Holy Spirit, is telling me to not go through with this. So David 
chose to do what is right, even though he had the right to do what maybe was wrong. I think that's an important thing to consider. So David did not do what he had the right to do because he wanted to do what was right. And too often we just skip over that and say, no, I have the right to do it, so I'm just going to do it. And then when we do it, we point back to that. Well, I, you know, they did it, or they did it to me, so I can, I can get even, you know, I can. And we don't want to call it revenge because that sounds bad, so we use other nicer sort of words. But that's what we're talking about. That's what we're talking about. And quickly, this, two things about this excuse. This is a very emotional excuse to use. Uh, it's very knee-jerk reaction. It's very just, I'm not even thinking I'm just going to act. I'm just going to respond out of hurt or anger or frustration or an attempt to even the score, settle the score. But it's also, if you think about it, a very immature excuse. This is what children do, right? It's, this is how children behave. It's this whole classic thing is if they jumped off a bridge, would you? Well, they did it, so does that mean you're just going to follow? It's like... Again, we do this as grown, thinking, somewhat mature at times, adults. But when we use this excuse, we're kind of throwing that out the window just because we felt like it in that moment or we felt justified in our anger or our whatever emotion in that moment. So my encouragement, and we'll get back to it in a minute, is like don't settle for that reasoning. Don't premeditate this terrible thing because then I can blame it on them. I, they did it. And so I can, or, you know, they should know better, and so I'm just going to do what they did, or I'm, I'm getting even. Let's not fall into that and sink to that excuse. The fourth one that we'll look at, and again, we'll come back to all four of these for a few minutes and look at alternatives. But the fourth excuse that we'll use once we've gotten in our own way is sort of this self-destructive spiral, and that is, I can't fix this. So this, this one has really long-term negative effects, because we keep using it over and over to justify what we did maybe, you know, last week. And then we still feel like, oh, I can't get over this. I'll never get over this. I can't solve this. I can't fix it. And so we just let it just kind of hang there. And so we get in our own way and stay in our own way because we just feel stuck. We've convinced ourselves there's nothing we can do, nothing we can say, there's no wrong that we can make right, and so why even try? It comes back to this fear of, if I try to make it better, I'll probably just make it worse. So let's just leave it like a level 7 instead of going to like a level 10. Let's just leave it there. And we just neglect kind of that that in fact makes it worse. The example here that we looked at a couple weeks ago, or what, no, it was last week, was Judas, one of the 12 disciples of Jesus. The ultimate betrayal. He hands Jesus over to the religious authorities that are looking to kill him so that they can do just that. And then they do just that. And Judas gets his money, and all of a sudden he feels guilty. And so he tries to return the money to the religious authorities, and they say, we don't care about your money. You can keep it. You can have it. No problem. You know, like, we're done here. We're out. And they just kind of leave him there in his guilt. And he just has this feeling, there's nothing I can do to fix this. There's nothing I can do to get over this. I've messed up way beyond what is even imaginable. And so in that despair, he takes his own life. Because he felt there's nothing I can do. He spirals and spirals and spirals, refuses to even try to do anything. Well, I guess he kind of at the beginning tries, but that, that fails and he quickly just quits. There's, n there's no hope here for him, and so he takes his own life. And here's the key. Maybe you, maybe you can't fix whatever mess you've made. 
maybe when you've gotten in your own way, whatever you have done to self-destruct or destroy someone else, you can't fix it. But does that mean that not trying to do anything is the solution? It doesn't do anything. It causes more pain and more heartache. It doesn't really make any sense. So as we look at these four excuses, what are our options? What are the alternatives? How can we, instead of saying this reason or excuse or justification, what, what is a better option for each of these four excuses when we get in our own way? So let's go back over them for just a few minutes this morning. So the first one, again, was no one will ever find out. We try to cover our tracks. We try to make it like it never, nothing to see here, you know. Poof, it's gone. So we have two options with this excuse. We can cover up or we can come clean. So David tried to cover up, and it seemed to really work really well for quite a while. He, you know, wow, this guy's not going to find out. This guy's out of the picture now. I fixed this issue. It all adds up to everyone from the outside looking in. Not a problem. But then when he was exposed, he only had one other option. Like, he he had to now come clean because God kind of did it for him. God kind of did that hard part for him, which we'll talk about in a second. So in response to this this probably the darkest moment in this man's life, he writes Psalm 51, one of the most beautiful psalms in the Bible. It's the psalm of repentance. He had to come clean. So here's the first three verses of Psalm 51. David writes this, Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love. Because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin. For I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. There's this famous phrase that the cover-up is worse than the crime. That's true. And that is really what happened here with David. So the child that Bathsheba and David bear together dies during childbirth. It does not survive. That's God saying, hey, maybe if you had come clean earlier, this might have had a different result. Maybe if I didn't have to humiliate you in front of your entire kingdom and you had humiliated yourself, maybe this would be a little bit different. But it, it was too late for David in this instance. So the cover-up is worse than the crime. And here's the other thing about cover-up. It's so much work. It just is. It's just oh, so many steps and so many things to consider and, and tracks you have to cover. And th- I mean, it's just so, why are we putting ourselves through extra work to cover up something that's probably eventually going to come out anyway? We're usually not as clever as we think we are. We leave something there that's, oh, wow, what about this? And then pff, the whole thing is just blown up anyway. So coming clean, here's why we don't do it. It seems way riskier, right? Like, ooh, man, I have to really, I have to (laughs) expose what's happened. I have to really tell the truth now. I have to probably hurt some feelings. I may have to, you know, ruin a relationship. But the problem is that was already done. It just hadn't been exposed yet. So that's what we fail to recognize. We think I'm making it better by acting like it didn't happen when it doesn't, again, solve the problem. It doesn't fix the issue. It doesn't relieve the pain. It just makes it invisible for a while but so coming clean is riskier but it has long-term benefits uh, in the end right away and it even even if there is pain in the moment of sort of the coming clean of what we've done there is sort of a weight that will that will come off and I think that's what David expresses here in in Psalm 51 so as we look at these two options we can either cover up or as an excuse or we can come clean but we can't do both There is an option that we must choose one or the other. So the second one, again, was the devil made me do it. Again, the oldest excuse that we've ever uh, heard of in the history of mankind. So there's, again, two options with this excuse. We can blame, which is the excuse, or we can bounce back. 
The blaming thing doesn't, it hasn't worked, it really doesn't work. What does that actually accomplish? Because you, again, you know in your gut what you've done, you know in your heart what you're actually responsible for, and the people that you're blaming that are innocent, what do you have to gain by throwing them under the bus? What do you have to gain by making them the bad guy? Nothing to gain, everything to lose. This, the blame game doesn't work. It doesn't work. So the alternative, though, is bounce back. And it's similar to the first one, but it's this idea of taking personal responsibility. So I didn't handle that correctly. I should not have said those words. I should not have sent that message. I should not have behaved in that way. I should not, whatever that is, we have to take personal responsibility and then make a plan from, from to move forward. That's part of bouncing back. So, and here, here's the simple uh, kind of image to have. If we're so busy pointing fingers at everybody else, we can't then pick ourselves up and bounce back. You just can't do it. Like, I need more than the two fingers I've got out here to pull myself up. So, again, it, this, this is an option that we must choose. We can either blame or we can begin to bounce back. We can't do both. It's an option. It's an excuse that we must excuse is what we're talking about today. The third excuse that we looked at was that they did it or they did it to me, so I'm justified in my response to them or in this action because it's what somebody else was doing. And as we mentioned, it's an emotional excuse. It's an immature excuse, but it's also completely normal. It's a normal excuse. Most people use this excuse. However, if we're followers of Jesus, we're not called to be normal. We're called to be odd. So the option here is we can either get even or we can be odd. That's the option as a follower of Jesus. I can be like everybody else in my actions and reactions and reasonings, or I can be different like I'm called to be holy. The word holy means to be set apart. So I can't use the reasoning and the immature excuses about getting even or they did it like everybody else does. I have to, by definition, be odd. My life has to look different. My reaction and responses have to look different. And excusing them by pointing the finger at somebody else's behavior doesn't work. This is seen in Romans chapter 12, verses 17 and 18. Paul writes, Never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see you are honorable. And here's the key. Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. He's telling us again here, not everyone's going to want to do this. Do all that you can. There, you will have opposition. It's going to be difficult to follow Jesus. It's going to be nearly impossible to do this thing. But he says, we gotta, we got to give it a go here. Just saying, well, they did it so I can doesn't work. We can't get even we have to be odd. Because he says here, evil to evil, that's normal. That's the normal response, normal behavior, normal excuse for our actions. But he says never do that. That's odd. And that's the way of Jesus. And here's the other uh, weird thing about this excuse is, and we'll go back to David and Saul. So David said, well, you know, he could have said, Saul's trying to kill me, so I'm going to kill him instead. We do the same thing. Well, they did this to me, so I'm going to do it back to them. What we're saying is, I don't like this person, but I'm going to behave just like them. I don't approve of their choices, but I'm going to make the same choice that they did. That doesn't make any sense when you, talk, when you think it out for a second that way. It just sounds a bit ridiculous. I don't like them or how they behave or how they act or their lack of reason or their abundance of excuses. However, because I can, I'm going to be just like them. 
It doesn't make a lot of sense. It doesn't get us anywhere. So again, the choice is we can either get even or we can be odd, but we can't do both. A choice must be made. And then here's the final one that we looked at. We'll spend a couple minutes on this one as we close. I can't fix this. The spiraling mentally, emotionally, out of control, down, down, down to ultimate despair. There's really two ways to view this phrase, I can't fix it, and it's these two options of regret or regroup. We can choose to live in regret or we can choose to regroup to figure out. And so we'll look at that for just a couple minutes. So uh, regret means we continually beat ourselves up over past mistakes and failures, and then we fear trying to fix it for fear of making it worse. We spiral into despair, into self-loathing. We begin to hate who we are because of what we've done. And that, that's a life of regret. That is a dark place to get to if we go down that road too far for too long. And it's a place where, in some cases, like Judah's, it may be a place that we get so far we can't come back from. It may not lead to taking your own life, but it can lead to you don't live a quality of life because you're so stuck on what I did in, you know, 2017 that I just can't live my life normally now. I, I don't have any peace because of what I said to them 10 years ago or how I treated them 20 years ago. I can't, you know, be who I really am because of what I've done. So we live this life of regret. There is an alternative. There is an option to this excuse, and it's that we regroup. So what, what that means, though, is changing the wording of this phrase. We go from I can't fix this to acknowledging I can't undo this, but I can try to do something about this. It's changing that one word. No, you can't, you can't undo what's been done. That is true. You can't unsay what you said. That's true. You can't go back and stop yourself unless you build a time machine, in which case this is awesome, but it may not be, may not be the right answer anyway. But we must try to do what we can to make the most of any situation, even the worst. So things like apologizing, allowing yourself to heal from whatever wounds you've inflicted on yourself and others, learning from mistakes and growing from them instead of repeating them over and over and over again. The, the idea here of regrouping is we don't focus so much on the problems, but on the solutions. There is a balance to this, though, because you do have to focus on the problem to remedy what you can, to fix what you can, to apologize properly. Because if you just say, oh, you know, I'm sorry, for what? You know, it's like you sometimes need to put a name to the apology. You have to put a face to the apology. You have to put an actual description, closed caption under that. You can't just say, oh, my bad. That doesn't really work, especially the deeper the hurt, the deeper the pain, the worse the decision, the longer that you've been in your own way. We, we have to work on the problem, but also with the solution in mind. And that's the only way that we can uh, regroup. And it means two things quickly uh, as we close. First, it's two, two thoughts to remember to take away with you. First, we have to get past our past. Okay? Your failure doesn't have to define who you are completely. Now, it's part of your story. It's part of the thing that you wish you hadn't said or done or whatever, but it doesn't have to define who you are as an entire person. That's what we call grace, right? That's what Jesus is really good at. Uh, forgiveness, like mercy that we don't deserve, yet he gives it anyway. That's what he does. That's who he is. And so we have to learn to walk in that, live in that, and get past our past. That current moment is not the end. It's not the period of your life. It's, it's, it's just a comma, and you're, we're moving on. We're going to regroup from this. And then the second idea about regrouping is to expect progression, not perfection. I've said that many times, but it, it's powerful. To not expect 
perfection, but to just expect progression. Because, yeah, you messed up. Guess what? You're probably going to mess up again. Get over it, right? Just expect that there will be times where you make these really dumb, immature, silly excuses, right, where you choose to get in your own way, even though people, as we'll talk about next week, have tried to tell you, stop, don't do that, turn around, you know, or you get into this, you know, people trying to tell you, okay, we can work through You're like, no, I'll never get over it. I can never undo it. I can't fix it. And we just, that's how we live life. It's like self-pity party all the time. That's no way to live. So we have to expect progression, not perfection. We will all fail. We will all need grace. We will all have to keep learning and keep growing. It's part of life. So if we can set that standard correctly, it will help. It's not that we excuse, not, not that, that, well, I can excuse my behavior now because God gives me grace. And Paul says in pretty strong language, that's not what grace is. That's what we call frustrating God's grace, where he's like, you know what, I'm kind of done. Boom, you know, give you the boot sort of thing. There is, you know, God's like, hey, I've got this patience meter here. You're like, let's bring that down. So that's, that's how that, that works. So we can either choose regret. Why is that funny, Kim? <laughs> we can, we can I regret saying that now. No, we can either choose to live in regret or we can regroup and do the next sentence in the sermon, right? No, you can, either re, you can either live in regret or you can regroup, but you can't do both. That's what we're seeing here with all of these excuses. There is an alternative, but you've got to choose the alternative instead of the excuse. The excuse is harder. It's riskier. It's more personal. There may be more to lose on the front end. And so we're worried about how I'm going to be perceived now or how I'm going to have lost trust now. Yep, that's true. All of that is true. But if we choose to the alternative to these regrets, then in the long term, we will have earned trust back. We will have earned reputations back. We will have learned how to not keep getting in our own way in the same way over and over. We will learn how, what it means to be patient with people instead of yelling at them right off the bat. We will learn what it means to actually think before we speak instead of putting our foot in our mouth. That's what regrouping is all about. So it's all of these sort of alternatives are super helpful in the long term. If we can push through the awkwardness and the pain and the discomfort, it is worth it in the end. So the question is, have you gotten in your own way? And if you have, just say so. Join the club. Don't try to hide it, cover it up, excuse it, blame it away. It, that's not going to work. In, in one form or another, it's going to still keep you in your own way. And don't just say, yes, I've messed up and I'm terrible and I'm going to beat myself down. That's not what grace is all about. Grace is about regrouping to move forward, having a plan on how can we not do this over and over and over? How can I not just get out of my own way, but how can I more often stay out of my own way? That's the key. That's the recipe to doing that is by finding the alternative to these excuses.